Hello there, this is Sarah Ashley with Nerds on Film. Are you tired of walking around topless? Well, I know I am. That's why I went to nerdonomy.com and purchased one of the many humorous t-shirts that we have to offer. Not only does it support our new media endeavor, but it also keeps me from being arrested. Thanks for listening. Listening to Nerds on Film with Brian Moriarty, David McGuire, and Sarah Ashley. So, who would you say was your first like celebrity childhood crush? Celebrity childhood crush? Yeah, so you're a kid, you have a crush, and it's the first celebrity that you've just been like, oh my gosh, I'm in the. I can't, I have to really think of that before I figure out which one was first. I'll, t- I'll give you some. Just give me some good ones. Some ones that definitely were bleeps on the radar. Yes. Uh, Terry Hatcher. Okay. Because of Lois and Clark. Of course. Of course. It's a logical guess. Um, Nerd. <laughs> come on. Terry Hatcher's hot. Yeah, no, she is. Yeah. She's only gotten hotter <clears throat> with age, too. She has. She's aged very well. I think Sean and I both had a thing for the girl from Alex Mack. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, 10 Things I Hate About You. And yes. What's her Those, name? Uh, I, I keep forgetting it because it's a, it's a very unique name. But, yeah, I can't remember. Um, but she one of those three named people. I feel like she was a three named person. Anyway, no, she just she has a long last name. I think. Okay. Anyway, continue. I would say probably Jennifer Love Hewitt. Definitely Anne Hathaway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this is just kind of going off of the, the yeah, timeline. Yeah, yeah. I feel like you're you're. This, these are relatively recent. Yeah, these they, they are. Sean, help me out here. Send us a text, please. If you remember who one of my childhood celebrity crushes were, please enlighten me because I don't remember them that much. Huh. My first celebrity crush was the Blue Ranger, Billy. David Yost. Yep. And he turned out yeah. to be gay. Yeah, it doesn't really surprise me, actually. Why? It just doesn't surprise me. He had, those, he had uh, some of the stereotypical tendencies of, uh, of a homosexual. I never really picked up on that. And, anyway. and that's not, I mean... Yeah, yeah, it's not a thing. I don't want to sound like I'm putting right, right, right. people in the boxes at all. Sure. Because it's... There are plenty of people I know who are gay who do not have any of the stereotypical right. you know personality traits sure, sure, sure. or the effeminate qualities but uh he definitely did kind of um even as a kid was like hmm there was a there was a little bit of a red flag i don't know i thought he was super cute i really liked him and sam from clarissa explains it all he used to climb into her bedroom yes of course um will Friedle. in the early years of boy meets world Eric, sure. yeah the older brother loved him. He was super duper cute. Until he got stupid. Yeah, he was still cute. I mean, he's still a cute person. Like, he's a very attractive guy. Uh, Matthew Broderick in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Understandable. Very understandable. Adorable and charismatic. And Mm -hmm. I'm still in love with Matthew Broderick to this day. Um, And then the other one being um, Carrie Ellis in Princess Bride, actually. I found him to be quite dashing in that movie. Yeah, he was pretty cool. So, uh, with that, welcome to Nerds on Film. I'm Sarah Ashley. And I'm Brian Moriarty. This episode is quite special. Yes, it is. It really is. Um, If you couldn't tell with the little lead-in, we're actually going to be talking about definitely Brian's favorite movie, and for me, it's in my top three, The Princess Bride. The fact that you have a top three and not a top five or a top ten is very telling. Well, yeah, I'm definitely putting it in the top three, and here's why. Um, so when I was younger, I used to have really severe asthma. And um, there was one night when I woke up in the middle of the night and I was just having the worst asthma attack I've had to date. Couldn't breathe. Skin was turning blue, like all this stuff. And I was just, I was trying so super duper hard to breathe. And my mom was like, you know, 
calling us. Um, we had a family friend who was actually an asthma specialist who lived down the street from us, and she's calling her, trying to get her to come over and, and help us, and like about to pack me up and put me in the car, and take me to the hospital because I was like pretty much about to die. And the woman finally comes over, gives me some emergency meds, and uh, and I'm able to kind of calm down and actually start breathing again, which was quite delightful. And, um, and she, you know, just advises my parents. She says, okay, we just need Sarah to kind of relax and calm down and just breathe normally. Is there anything you can do to kind of get her to just relax for the night? Because again, this is the middle of the night. And I was like up, I was like crazy, like on adrenaline. And my parents said, well, I guess we can just sit her down with a movie. Sarah, what do you want to watch? First things out of my lips, Princess Bride. And so they plop me down on the recliner in the living room. It's like two in the morning. I just had, a, again, a shot of adrenaline for the emergency asthma meds and I sat back and watched Princess Bride and it put me to sleep within like the first 15 minutes just because it was very soothing so well the Princess Bride holds a very special place in my heart as well my family back east always asks me to do the impressive clergyman as he's written in the script his whole bit which is nice if I may oh please do marriage marriage is what brings us together to die. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream. And then they cut to some sword fighting and, yeah, and yeah. shit. So, treasure your love. Skip to the end. Have you the wing? <laughs> and do you, buttercup, man and wife, say man and wife. Man and wife. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Actually, funny thing. So there's some very important legislative, very important stuff happening at the Supreme Court right now, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, the Defense of Marriage Act, et cetera, et cetera. One of the best protest signs I saw out there in front of the Supreme Court was somebody holding up a sign that said "Mowage." <laughs> Mowage is what brings us together today. And it was so flippin' funny. I was like, that person, like, wins at life right there. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, the late Peter Cook was just a, he was a comic genius. Oh, absolutely. And of course, I mean, he was his, at his best when he was with Dudley Moore as well. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I want to say that was one of his last roles. I don't yeah. know, I don't really... Because I, really I think know. he passed away in the late 80s. And the movie came out in 87, if I'm not yes, mistaken. Yes, it did. Yeah. 1987. It is, to this date, the one movie where I can say, without question, is my favorite movie. Mm -hmm. And when they ask that question, if you were stuck on an island, what would be the one movie you could watch? It would be that movie. That's yeah. awesome. That's really good. Yeah. Um, so what? So let's let's break this down. We want to do... We're going into this saying that we want to do kind of a, a legitimate... A thesis, if you will. Yeah, a legitimate critique of uh, of the Princess Bride. First of all, if you haven't seen the movie, I don't even know why you're listening to this podcast right oh, now. What the fuck? I mean, seriously, this <laughs> is call called Nerds on Film. Fi you call yourself a film nerd? You get the hell out of here! You, you know, get the hell out right now! <laughs> you know, seriously, watch it. Yes. Well, wait. Welcome, Welcome back. back. <laughs> we were just looking for an excuse to do that, weren't we? <laughs> Well, I just saw the opportunity to yeah. go with it. Bring, bring back the gag. Bring back the gag. Um, oh, hope you liked it. <laughs> How could you, you not? You watched it, right? Yeah. I mean, really. There's so many good, like, quotable one-liners in that movie. Oh, that it's so great. <laughs> even, if, even if you don't like the fantasy fairy tale aspect of it, you need to just love the humor. He's out on, he's out on top of us. I wonder if he's using the same wind we are using. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody want a peanut? <laughs> Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I don't, I don't think, think it means, think it means what you think, think it means. 
There's so much good in it's that movie. It's quotable. So, and you and I, I think we can both quote this movie almost verbatim. Uh, certain parts of it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I remember um, I, I was in a class studying theater. Theater. And uh, I was taking a, a script analysis class, and we had to pick a script. Mm-hmm. It could be any script we wanted. The script, of course, I picked was The Princess Bride, and I uh-huh. had to pitch it. And I had to pitch what scene I wanted to do. And m- my goal was this, and they said, well, what would you do differently about it? Because the whole thing had to be uh, a different approach. Either you doing a new production of, it, of an existing play, or you adapting a play to a film, or adapting a film to a play, which is what I chose. Oh. So I thought Princess Bride would be amazing on stage if you did it right. Um, we, did it just, we didn't really specify whether it would be a musical or a or a straight play though there actually was a musical written for the princess bride was there really there was and we'll get to that later okay uh we just decided to do more of a straight play version of it but it's so epic Uh that i think doing an epic straight play might not do it justice i think straight plays now in contemporary theater have a much smaller context to them okay and pulling that off would be pretty challenging whereas if you have it be a musical people are okay accepting oh big scale bigger budget well they expect it to be over to over the top so. exactly and I mean, it's a very over the top story because sure. it's a fairy tale right yeah absolutely so, I mean, so what, could, what scene did you pick did the you... miracle max scene nice yes i'm not a witch i'm your wife but after what you just said and i'm not even sure i want to be that anymore of course i played miracle max I'm of like, course you did go away i'll call the brute squad or i'm on the brute squad you, you are, are the brute, brute squad, squad. <laughs> <laughs> the king's so... thinking son fired me and thank you so much for bringing up that memory <laughs> Oh my gosh, Billy Crystal in that scene, stupid good. Yeah, stupid, stupid. Well, B- Billy Crystal in general is, is stupid he's great. good. Absolutely great. Um, well, let's take it back for a second. Yes. So I don't know how we really want to. Do we want to go from the beginning, or do we want to just talk about overall? Or? Well, let's kind of just talk overall. Okay. Princess Bride came out in 1987. Um, right. Which and it had been in development for 10 years at this point. Do you want to go into the backstory a little bit about that? Oh, do I? I think you do. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you're interested in learning more. a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah. This is my, my nerd erection. Yeah. Just shift the table. Sorry. Your nerd erection. <laughs> <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> I always think about, oh, uh, my parents are listening to this podcast. Who cares? It's funny. I'm not quite at that phase yet where I see my parents as equals. Or oh. like Whether it's just other people. I'm and sorry. I, st- I do still DFI my parents a little bit. So... William Goldman, famous screenwriter who had written other major pieces like Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Mm -hmm. uh, just to name one, wrote this book in the 1970s called The Princess Bride, S. Morgan Stern's uh, abridged version of a classic fairy tale, right? Because the whole chung-in-cheek joke was it was an abridged version of a full, very long folktale. And the joke was, it was not William Goldman's abridgedation of it, it was always that original piece right so it was always meant to be kind of a tongue-in-cheek spoof of fairy tales yeah it was a joke that he slapped himself on as the editor exactly brilliantly done might i add um i've read pieces of the book i haven't read the whole thing i do know that the key differences between the book and the movie you know I, I own the book i haven't read it yet it's you should in read my, it it's in my giant stack of many many books yeah. i need david mcguire of course our Co-host, Our absentee co-host has read both the week. book and seen the movie and says the book is amazing. It comes highly recommended. So if you want to check it out, you can. Certainly. It's worth it. Anyway, he wrote the script based on the book for development in the early 1970s. And it just had a really hard time getting the green light. Probably because it was a very big budget. And I think... I don't know how much changes went on, but the script that's available online today... Is pretty much the shooting script 
of what was shot in 1987. Yeah. In fact, there's almost no difference to it. Yeah, it's, I don't think they were. I don't think they were in much in the headspace, or at least I don't think that's really Rob Reiner's type style, right. really, to do that much ad-libbing <clears throat> for that particular type of yeah. thing going on. Well, the 25th anniversary Blu-ray version of The Princess Bride has a commentary track, one with Rob Reiner and one with William Goldman. Uh, the DVD, special edition DVD, has it too. Has it too? Okay, yeah. good. Goldman's commentary is fascinating. I would say listen to that first, because he gives you a lot of insight. I started to listen to it. It was pretty interesting yeah. to listen to. The one the that I found very fascinating minutes. is... A key plot point, the Pit of Despair. Oh, the isn't there a zoo beforehand? It's called the Zoo of Death. Yes. Yes. So Pumperdink, apparently in Florin, there's this massive zoo full of these very larger-than-life creatures. And Wesley, instead of being captured and put in the Pit of Despair, where they use the life-sucking mm-hmm. device, which was totally invented for the movie, he's just in the zoo. And he gets tortured by the animals, I think. But it was too expensive to shoot on film that'd be interesting to see if you can pull that off on stage though because the whole thing is that Fezzik and Anigo go through the zoo of death to rescue Wesley and they yeah. still find him right. half dead Miracle Max is in both right. um, versions but just it always fascinated me is, oh wow that's a pretty dramatic difference I mean I guess the plot point is still the same that he is was presumed dead was the albino dead. there? no the albino was totally invented for the movie well then I'm glad that they did that for the movie because I love the albino <laughs> the pit of despair don't even think about trying to escape (laughs) (laughs) part oh my god every single damn time i'd still bust up laughing that's great doesn't matter how many times i've seen it don't even try screaming the wolves are too thick (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's just it's so brilliant two different voices yes mel something is the guy's name mel smith i believe is the name of the uh Mm. the actor who plays him this movie the script was around for 10 years and was having a really hard time getting done. And the funny thing is when he originally wrote the script for MGM, who is not the people who released the movie, by the way, at least not until I think they did the re, the uh, DVD later on, he wrote the script for MGM, and his conditions were he wants to keep the rights to the screenplay because he, he knew it might have been iffy. Yeah. And they said, well, that's fine. Well, we want the rights to the book, mm. which is odd because the book that had already been published weird. at that point. But I guess they wanted some level of leverage, right? The funny thing was, because it was in so much of development purgatory for years and years, they eventually just said, hey, look, I don't think the script is going to happen. I'd like to buy back the rights to my book. And they're like, all right. So he owns both the rights to the screenplay and the book. And that never changed, even when the movie got made. That's really good for him. That doesn't happen terribly often. No, not, not at all. So... Pretty much he has all the control over any future adaptations wow. or anything based off of the stories. Which smart is smart business move for that. Very guy. smart business move. It's like Lucas telling Fox, I want to sell the t shirts, I want the merchandising. <laughs> sure, your little B movie that's not gonna make any money. Right. And of course they're kicking themselves for that. Mm-hmm. You know. So there you go. Very smart business move. But to be fair, Princess Bride also when it came out was not all that successful. It didn't really find its audience until home video. This is true. Which was a new medium, in a way. Because home video, as far as VCRs, they really didn't become household devices until at least, I think, the Mm mid-80s. You know, they'd have been around since the 70s, of course, but just like a CD player was around in the mid-80s, knowing not everybody had... had Or like Blu-rays. Blu-rays were originally, oh, this is so high quality. Yeah, but it's like $500. I still don't have a Blu-ray player. (laughs) Oh, well, now they're really cheap. There's no excuse. Why? (laughs) Yeah... I know. <laughs> it's, it's a shame on Just me. Just shame on you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so then how did Rob Reiner get put onto this project, do you know? Uh, from what I remember, I think Spinal Tap 
got him noticed enough that he had his pick of projects, and I think he had heard of the Princess Bride script. If I remember correctly, I do believe that Rob Reiner had wanted to do it, but could he was he was with William Goldman on the fact that they were trying to get the movie made. Yeah. Again, the project wasn't getting the green light. And then when This Is Spinal Tap happened, they saw the success of that, which, again, that was one of those movies that they didn't think was going to be really successful at all. They're like, what the hell is this rock documentary thing? You can't do that. But then because that was so successful, then they said, okay, let's let this guy do what he wants. And then they let him do Princess yeah. Bride. <clears throat> and which is, which is interesting because, in my opinion, I feel like having Spinal Tap and 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 Princess Bride, they're actually very similar in a way, in the sense that they're they're almost like loving satires of the genre. They are very much so, and it's amazing to think how much Spinal Tap was influential. Because look at the cast: yeah, Chris, Christopher Guest, mm-hmm. who of course played Count Rugen, uh, Harry Shearer, right? Yes, a couple of those guys are pretty much guaranteed to be in all the Christopher Guest's movies, which are, of course, are mockumentaries, right? Right, the mockumentaries, and they're, um, they pull heavily from the, the Michael second... Michael McKean, of course, as well. Yeah, the, the Second City crew. Definitely. And they choose people who are very strong improvisers. Jane Lynch, obviously. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. I'm pretty sure actress. Jane Lynch was also Second City. Was she? Yeah. Wouldn't Catherine, surprise me. Catherine O'Hara, Second City. Eugene Levy, Second City. Of course. Yeah. People who have experience doing long-form improvisational yeah, scenes. Yeah, yeah, But nevertheless, yeah, Rob Reiner, at this point, was an actor. Right. right. He hadn't really proven himself as a director until Spinal Tap. And I believe he had done one or two other projects between Spinal Tap and Princess Bride. Because Princess Bride, remember, went in production in 1985, I believe. Mm-hmm. Maybe even 86. And Spinal Tap was late 70s, I think. Rob Reiner did Spinal Tap in 1984, then came oh, out... later than I thought. Okay. Yeah. And then <clears throat> The Sure Thing came out in 1985. Then after that was Stand By Me in 86, and then Princess Bride in 87. Um, but I think he cinched, they cinched the deal for Princess Bride after The Sure Thing came out. Okay. Um, and a, then, a, and then after, a scripted film, right. Yeah, and then after Princess Bride, um, he did When Harry Met Sally. So pretty much anything awesome that came out in the 80s was probably either Rob Reiner or John Hughes, in my opinion. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, and even Rob Reiner had a hard time convincing to get the movie greenlit. Because, yes, he did, but they also didn't give him the budget he really needed either. Right. They had to make cut some corners. And, I mean, it, the movie looks still looks pretty impressive. And I was watching it last night in, in preparation and also just because, you know, for funsies. I wanted yeah. to. And that it really does hold up. I think I remember when I was a kid, you know, you can, cert- you can tell when a movie's an 80s movie. This doesn't feel like an 80s movie. It doesn't even really look that much like an 80s no, if movie. If it wasn't for the 8-bit graphics in the beginning, yeah, which is now back in, right? Um, it wouldn't really give itself away that much. And it's very, very subtle. He did shoot it to be very timeless. The mom is very 80s with her hair. Oh, and well, her... God. Well, okay. Yes. The, the modern scenes with Fred Savage and Peter Falk. Yes. Okay. Those do feel very... 80s. But the scenes that take place, of course, in the world of the fairy tale yes. are timeless. Yes. Very much so. And I think he did a really good job of not make not doing the 80s version of a fairy tale. It's kind of like, I, I just feel like a lot like the 80s version of the future or the 80s version of what the 40s looked like in Roger Rabbit. Like it's it, like a certain, to a certain extent, it's like kind of sort of accurate. But then when you look at there's certain elements that are very 80s. Well, there's there's room for expression is what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Like retro punk. Yes. Retro punk or future punk. Right. It's these elements where you, you mishmash 
two different styles to give your version of this, right? Yeah. You know, he tried to go for as much accuracy as he could. Right. It's kind of, again, the period's not exact. It's well, not, and the, not and quite, that was intentional. Yeah. The period, nor is the location. What you kind of get the feeling of is it's a little bit late medieval, more Renaissance-ish, mm-hmm. but definitely no later than that. Right. And definitely not in the countries where the Renaissance is really happening, like England and Italy. Mm-hmm. I Even, mean, we can kind of assume that it's on the same planet as ours because they do make mentions of Spaniards and Sicilians and Australia, but, but Florin and Gilder are not... Actual yeah, countries, and that places. was intentional by Goldman. Yeah, Florin and Gilders are, of course, units of money that were used during this time period. Mm-hmm. Yet, when I even researched that, it is indefinite to point those units to any one country. Yeah. So Florin would sound like uh, what those in Florence used for money, and they did at one point. Gilders, I think, were used in the Netherlands, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. But again, the names have floated around Europe. Right. So just the point is, it's European. Right? So, so here you have the setting that. The writer is providing to us that is not necessarily in a specific time period, just some time in the past, not in a very specific location, just somewhere just tangible enough. But, you know, there are no cliffs of insanity that we know of, etc. Right. Those um, are actually shot in, on a location in Ireland. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Well, that's cool. <clears throat> but, I mean, they don't call it the cliffs of insanity. No, of course not. So, he's kind of setting the stage for us to have a real traditional fairy tale setup. And then he brings in these characters. And I think the characters are really what sell the movie, you know? As should any good story. Exactly. Exactly. And they each have their own objectives, their own, you know, personalities, etc. And I find it kind of interesting that... And, and you know, Brian and I, were, we were talking about this earlier... I feel that Inigo Montoya is actually kind of more the traditional hero of the story. I feel like he he hits a little bit more of the traditional heroic journey, more so than Wesley does. He goes through a rebirth of sorts, you know, when um, Fezzik finds him and he's like drunk off his ass and yeah. has to uh, and has to like. I'm go- here for Sandy. <laughs> you told me to go back to the beginning. So I have. <laughs> This is where I am. So, I mean, really, technically, <laughs> he's actually kind of gone through two rebirths, right? He went through one that we didn't see. Right. He's on the path of, of vengeance. He has a very clear objective. You know, he lost his mentor, who was his dad. And he, he does definitely go through, like, if you follow the the Joseph Campbell monomyth, very typical the hero with a thousand faces, you know, which is a, a total literary criticism thing he's I'm dropping right now. He's looking for justice because his loved one was killed yeah but not just his not just his loved one but his his mentor and um to the point is robin hood batman (laughs) superman to a degree right um captain america to Mm -hmm. a degree name the hero exactly exactly um and and he's he you know he becomes a master swordsman because he he's been given this opportunity harry potter (laughs) right he's been given this opportunity to to learn this thing and and it's almost like a like it was bestowed upon him from from the the higher regions to have this you know really great skill and um and then he uses it and then it fails on him and then he you know goes down and out and then he comes back and he triumphs and he you know meets his objective and kills the six-fingered man and says bring back my father you son of a bitch which is just awesome 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 scene yeah um and he definitely goes on a very traditional um sort of hero's journey yeah well if you're talking about anigo being the hero then Mm -hmm. he's definitely the hero in 
the fairy tale world. And let's talk about the fairy tale world for a little bit. Okay. When you're talking about the web of the characters that are in this world, yeah. there is a very unique archetype that is used within Wesley. To at least Inigo. If we're going to use it, Inigo is the, the hero yes. of the story. That to Inigo, Wesley is the fake opponent ally. Yes. Uh, which is, for those who don't know, a fake opponent ally is someone who appears to be the opponent but ends up being your friend, mm-hmm. right? And very much true, because otherwise the plot wouldn't have unfolded as it did. I love that yeah. that sword fight scene, by the yeah. way. The inverse of that, of course, is the fake opponent ally, which is, uh, or the fake ally opponent, which is they pretend to be your friend and they end up working against you, yeah. which is actually much more common in films where you find right. out very much, I mean, it's used in the Dances with Wolves, uh, Avatar, look, look of course. Look it up on TV tropes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, these are important tropes to they understand. Are, no, they are very important. Um, and there's a reason why they are still around, because we identify with them. Yeah. Right? How many times do we feel betrayed by someone we, we trust? Sure. How many times do we find that someone we dislike is actually a true friend? Yeah. You know? These are moments that are very human. Yeah. Right? So. Oh my god, I love that the part when they're having the sword fight on top of the cliffs, and he's just like, <laughs> who are you? He's like, I'm no one of consequence. I must know. Get used to disappointment. Yeah, all right. (laughs) (laughs) This is so good. (laughs) You are wonderful. Thank you. Every time it becomes so, I admit that you are better than I am. Then why are you smiling? Because there's something you don't know. What is that? I am not (laughs) (laughs) left-handed. So good. That whole scene is so brilliant. And they did all the sword fighting in that. Yeah, pretty much all that sword fighting. I think the one thing they didn't do was the acrobatics. Yeah, the gymnastics flipping around, and right. I'm pretty sure when he threw the sword, did not land point down into no. the... No, <laughs> and there was someone who, when he threw the sword in the air, yeah. there was a, a yeah. grip who was ready to drop the sword back in Inigo's hand when he does that whole bit. Or so, when it, like, lands point down in, like, that mound of dirt. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So there's both those moments were, of course, trick photography. Yeah. And they trained and trained and trained for that scene. Mm-hmm. And that scene is probably one of the best sword fights on film. Oh, yeah choreographed by the late and great bob anderson mm-hmm. who if i could just name some of the movies he's done okay obviously the princess bride highlander yes the lord of the rings trilogy nice the original star wars trilogy shut the front door he trained with errol flynn who of course was <laughs> like crap. the quintessential sword fighter right oh my god if anybody from the classic hollywood knew how to swing a sword errol flynn was just oh brilliant yeah well errol that. flynn was was robin hood and he also did Pirates of the Caribbean, which, of course, if you look at wow. those sword fights with Captain Jack Sparrow and Will Turner, you can notice there's lots of similarities, too. Oh, Orlando Bloom. Yep. And Johnny Depp. Uh, yeah. He passed away just, unfortunately, just a little over a year ago, and uh, brilliant. How old is he? He was 89 years old. Well, he lived a very full 89 years. Good God. Yeah, he basically defined sword fighting on film. That's crazy. Us, if you think about it. That's one hell of a thing to achieve, too. That's awesome. Yeah. And, of course, speaking of great swashbucklers, right, Wesley looks so much like the Douglas Fairbanks Zorro. Oh, absolutely. And Jr., then yeah. that's pretty much what Reiner was going for, is that he wanted a guy who would look like that and who could look like that, which is why he cast Carrie Ellis, who was virtually unknown at the time. Pretty much, yeah. Um, yeah. And so was actually Robin Wright. Well, she well, was, most of the cast was kind yeah. of unknown. Rob, yeah. Robin Wright was... Uh, she was on a soap opera at that point. Right. While Sean was a, an established playwright at that point, but not really much of an actor. I mean, he'd yeah. done a little bit of acting work, 
Mandy Patinkin was mostly new. He, he again was, was he did theater. He did, did musical theater. theater. Right. Um, he had just done Sunday in the Park with George, I believe, at this point. Yeah. And at at this point, wasn't he also? Um, he had already played Che in the original production of. He had Evita. already been in Evita in the late seventies. Yeah. yeah. Mandy Patinkin is hands down one of the triple greatest. Triple threat. He's one of Quadruple the greatest. threat. He's one of the greatest actors to yeah. ever grace anything. And he was, of course, if you don't know what I'm talking about, watch Criminal Minds because that he was on that show for Criminal years. Criminal Minds. He's on Homeland. Um, he's on Homeland now? I'm pretty sure he's on Homeland. Wow, um, I didn't know that. He was on um, TV show Dead Like Me. Yes, I remember that. Um, he was wonderful in that. I yeah. am, oh, and <laughs> if you can stand Barbara Streisand, I know some people are very polarized by her, um, but he was in the movie Yentl. And oh, that's right. He's very he good in that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He's good in pretty much anything he's he does. He's good in anything. He's just awesome. But this was his crowning achievement, I think. Sure, sure. And well, one of his favorite roles to play. One of, and he has a little bit of the swashbuckler look too because yeah. it, I mean he's got the the gold fencing vest but look at the mustache mm-hmm. the mustache is very Douglas Fairbanks oh yeah yeah and it's, that was one thing I was like these guys have almost similar looks going on with it but of course he had the Errol Flynn hair going yes. on with it and yeah. that was, but you can definitely see what Reiner was trying to go for absolutely which is really cool classic Hollywood and, you know it's kind of funny that you mentioned um, Bob Anderson who did the the sword play um, also did the uh, star, uh, sword play for Star Wars I actually kind of came across something while I was just, you know, perusing other people's opinions and stuff on, on Princess Bride. And I saw this thing that this guy had about basically drew a comparison between the characters in Princess Bride with the characters in Star Wars, um, saying that Inigo was Luke Skywalker. You have the swordsman. You have the princess with Princess Leia and Princess Buttercup. You have the pirate with Han Solo and Wesley. Um, you have the emperor with humperdinck and then you have uh, darth vader with rugen the six-figured men so then is fezzik chewy <laughs> because yeah i don't know i actually i don't i don't think he kind of touched base like touched that one but right um I, you know it kind of makes me wonder like who's the obi-wan kenobi you know yeah well you can't... actually the obi-wan kenobi in this case would probably be Inigo's father right because he was slain he was trying to get revenge mm-hmm. right so in a way he was slain back... by the six-fingered man oh. right <gasps> Ooh, parallels <laughs> well it's very interesting that you bring that up because in star wars there's a brilliant job when you're talking about epic stories since we're trying to make the epic comparison yes. here well, star wars we're talking specifically about epic fantasies uses yeah. the technique of en medias res means you start in the middle of the action right mm-hmm. so you establish okay we're in the middle of a big conflict something bad happened the Empire took over. There was one point, there's Rebel Alliance. Something happened before when you find out about Darth Vader, right? That's more or less backstory. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much in this case. But well, makes me... Okay, wait, wait, wait. Let's back up real quick. Yeah. What was it that took Wesley away from the cottage farm in the first place? Oh, they had no money to marry. That was, oh, okay. It was something that um, the grandfather said. Yes, okay. Uh, as their narrator. So they had no money to marry, so he went off to make his fortune. Okay. I think he was doing, uh, I'm assuming fisherman work, maybe okay. maybe mercantile work, sure. uh, working like a mercantile ship, and then yeah. this ship got hijacked. Uh, of course, he's presumed dead and mm-hmm. captured by the dread pirate Roberts, yes. right? And word gets back to shore that he's been killed. And Buttercup locks herself in her room, doesn't eat or sleep. Yeah. Whereas in Star Wars, you see the mentor character get killed. Yes. In a way, that, for the main character, that is... Well, it's not really Luke's intrusion, because when we talk about story analysis, there's the there's the stasis, there's the status quo that will be unchanged unless something happens to break that stasis, right? I think for Luke, that was probably meeting the droids. 
Okay, yeah. More than likely, right? Yes. We see everything happen with Luke. Yes. We see everything happen with Luke. With Inigo, we don't. We don't. He has to fill us in. Yeah, what breaks his stasis is meeting Vecini, right? Yeah. Yeah. And and joining that. Right. That little band of marauders there. Right. And to make a kind of a classical parallel here using the story of Oedipus, right? Yes. They're trying to cure the plague in the city of Corinth. The plague already happened. The plague's already happening. Yeah. When he makes the announcement, I'm going to find who get to the bottom of this and we're going to restore justice and all that stuff mm-hmm. so i just want really oh academic. God, so many so many parallels though but this is fun i love it yeah <laughs> this yeah. is what we need to do all we are, the time we are going hardcore college style on the princess bride ladies and gentlemen. um that's okay we need to teach a seminar on this course <laughs> just <laughs> <Anyway>. saying <laughs> i mean when, when you got two people who are so passionate about storytelling in general yeah i mean this is bound to happen this at some point totally yeah but yeah so let's talk about buttercup okay okay so, the Princess Leia here, except this is why I like Princess Leia more. She yeah, does I stuff. <laughs> I wouldn't call her Princess Leia. I Princess know, I, Leia... I know. I know what we're, what we're talking about. I'm just saying, like, in this yeah. case, when we're drawing the parallel. Yeah. Princess Leia is much more... Yes, she fits because she's the princess, I guess, but she's a princess in name only. Yeah. I shouldn't say that because she does have some sort of regal title. She does lead the, the Rebel Alliance. Mm-hmm. For a good portion of it, if, unless you don't count Mon Mothma. Well, and, and Princess Buttercup here is not actually... She wasn't born a princess. She becomes a princess only because she's engaged to Prince Humberty. And she never actually marries, so the funny thing is she's never really a she's princess. She's never really a princess. She's never really actually a princess. She's just a bride. Yeah. Um. So the interesting thing here is... Let's... Like, when we're breaking down the motivations of the characters, mm-hmm. we have Vizzini. He's basically getting paid by Humperdinck to start a war. Okay, Humperdinck here is a warmonger, so he just wants... He's just in it for the money. Yeah, he wants some bloodshed for some some money and more power. Um, You have Inigo Montoya, who's completely driven by revenge and whatever he can do to get revenge. You have um, Wesley, who's just driven to do everything for Buttercup. He is motivated by her beauty and his love for her, etc., etc. Buttercup is a little bit foggier. I feel like she's mostly complacent whenever she's not around Wesley. So, or whenever she's not really with Wesley. She gets her strength from Wesley. Yes. Yeah. Her idea uh, of just everything else is what can I do to survive? Yeah. And so, that fits the romantic trope of the true love story that the two people need each other. They give each other meaning. They give each other they give each other their their inner strength. Yes. Right. So, you know, she's just kind of complacently going through life, and then she realizes that she loves Wesley, he loves her, then they have purpose to be together, and then he leaves, and then she's got nothing, so she sits in her room and starves herself, and then Humperdinck says that he wants to marry her, and she says, in her mind, what do I need to do for survival? They were so poor that he had to, that Wesley had to leave in the first place. Right. So and she didn't have any money, so it was probably marry this guy or starve to death, so she yeah. chooses survival. And then she just complacently goes along with that, and then she gets captured by Vizzini, and then she hops on the ship and says, okay, I'm either going to get my throat cut by this guy, or I'm going to jump into eel-infested waters and try to save myself that way. Um, So everything, I guess, when Wesley is not involved, everything for her is just, what can I do to survive? Even before she knows Wesley is the Dread Pirate Roberts. Right. She's still fighting him tooth and nail because her whole thing is just, I need to just survive. I just need to live. What can I do to live? And then I guess when Wesley's around, then her purpose just becomes just to be with Wesley. I think it's important that we paint the world. One of the things that 
I remember very firmly from from doing script analysis is understanding very much the world of the story yeah. that we're doing. And yes, we talked about this, that this world is very much like our own in that we know that there are major countries like Australia and they mentioned, what was the other one? Sicily, S- uh, uh, Sicily, Spain, exactly. and Spain. Australia. Right. So, all right, don't you must mess be... with the Sicilian. My death is on the right. line. <laughs> right. Or you must be the Spanish brat. Right. Yes. Yeah. Or he yeah. calls himself the Spaniard. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> we'll talk about that scene in a moment. Too. And, then, and then the, the iodine powder comes from Australia, which is full of criminals. Right. So this is definitely late 1500s. Sure. Why not? Let's say late late 16th. Why not? Late 16th century. Let's just go with it. On the on the safe side. But case in point, because there is no specific location, not unlike Hamlet or not unlike Shakespeare, you you get to kind of play with it a little bit. You get to play with... Hamlet was Denmark. Right. But yeah. it's a Denmark that we're not really familiar with anymore. Okay. Right? Okay. Yeah. So if you can do it in the period of Denmark if you want to, but you really have to understand, as long as you understand the world of the story and the rules that that world dictates, then you can kind of play with it a little bit. I think there's a couple of laws in this world that need to be addressed for understanding this story. First of all, true love conquers all. Mm-hmm. That's the binding. That's like the ohm of this un- of this universe. Yeah. True love always conquers all. Because if it doesn't, the whole universe would just collapse yes. on itself. Like hardcore, massive black hole. Everyone's screaming in the fire everywhere. So it would be... It, it That's really, really important. But the other one, unfortunately, in this is that women don't have much power in this world. Well, I mean, if you think about it, there really are only two female characters in the movie itself. Yeah, Buttercup. Buttercup, and uh, you've got um, Miracle Max's wife. Oh, right. and then, okay, and then the booer. So that's three. And <laughs> right. then And then the kid's mom. Well, and the queen. And the queen. But she's the queen, only, she, she's, she's in for like two minutes in that movie at the yeah. most. She's mostly just a backdrop. Yeah. Yeah, she, doesn't really, she only has one line in the she's, entire movie. She's a figurehead. Exactly. <laughs> Not like the king in that, <laughs> in that too. <laughs> but, but the king is so cute. <laughs> yeah, the king is very cute. Even the king has better lines. Nevertheless, right, women are a back seat yeah. in this. And so Buttercup, looking at her circumstances... She's like a Helen of Troy. In a way, she's a Helen of Troy. But looking at her circumstances, she's a woman who's trying to survive with her options, like you say. Yeah. You know, she's running this farm. It's kind of assumed that she owns the farm because Wesley is her farm boy. She orders him around. So, I don't know why, but when I was a kid, I always thought that, maybe this is just from the context of a child, but I felt like her parents owned the farm, and she was just kind of like this brat. Yeah, you never see the parents, right? Why was her attitude so shitty in the beginning? What the hell was that? Well, I think that's the only way she knew how to communicate. I guess With them at first, right? And then, of course, their relationship develops. Nevertheless, even though she runs a farm, it's a peasant existence. And, of course, without any farm help... It just goes to shit. She's right. not making any money. Yeah. So, of course, this prince sees her and wants to marry her. What's her only option for survival, right? I'm going to marry the rich dude. Well, and he only he only wants her for a sacrificial lamb anyway. As you find out later on in the script. Yes. yes it's, she's a pawn in his chess game. That's kind of her motivation, right? You're right, is to survive. And then, of course, when she finds out that Wesley is not murdered by the Dread Pirate Roberts, in fact, that he is posing as the Dread Pirate Roberts, mm-hmm. as you find out, as him and the man in black abducting her from the kidnappers yeah really rescuing her actually but you know it'd be interesting i i do kind of want to get an idea though um i heard that the characterization of buttercup is different in the book okay and that she's a little bit more charismatic potentially a little bit more manic but that really her beauty is the crux of all the action which i find kind of interesting 
I mean... I would hope so, because the story's called The Princess Bride. Well, hey, there are certain titles that are misnomers. <laughs> True. It's well, maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, just because it's about the main character. I mean, it doesn't have to be about the main character, right? Yeah. Who's the main character of Jesus Christ Superstar? It's not Jesus. It's, it's Judas. Judas. It's Judas. Totally. Right? Totes Judas. So... <laughs> It's just just goes to show you. So I, I would be interested to, to learn, I guess, learn a little bit more about that um, because I've always kind of wanted Buttercup to be a bit more of a compelling character. I feel like she is not necessarily a person who makes things happen so much as things just happen to her. Yeah. Um, which for me, I find a little frustrating personally. As a feminist, yes, I can see why you would find that. Yeah, yeah. But you, as you a feminist, I'm. I mean, I support feminine rights, but I just I don't. I, I, it's weird for me to be a man, call myself a feminist. feminist um, so. There are plenty of men out there who call themselves feminists. You guys can own it. I'm giving you all permission. It's totally fine. If you okay. are for equal rights between the sexes, you are a feminist. Deal with it. <laughs> Feminism is not a dirty word. Okay. <laughs> a lot of people call it the f word. It's not. Anyway, sidetrack. That was Sorry. a totally random sidetrack. Sorry. But I feel like she's, again, she's just not somebody who takes a whole hell of a lot of action. She's feisty in the beginning with her attitude towards Wesley, and then he, you know, converts her into a softer human being. And then she's a complacent. And then she becomes feisty again when, again, she's having to fight for a little bit of survival um, when she thinks that he's the Dread Pirate Roberts who killed her love. And then, you know, oh, my sweet Wesley, what have I done? And then goes tumbling down the hill after him, which, why couldn't you walk? <laughs> well, I think she assumed that he wasn't going to make it. Oh, so. maybe. So, so she goes to throw herself down for suicide with him. Yeah. All right. Which, hey, is also a trope. That is a trope. From classic literature. It is indeed. Very yeah. Romeo and Juliet, actually. Yeah, just throw yourself on the blade. You know, in the fire swamp you know, Wesley's protecting her the whole time. And even when he's being attacked by the, the rodent of unusual size. Which is also in the book. Yeah. And I'm just frustrated because like, why don't you pick up your stick and just like beat the rat with it? You know, try to help save the poor guy. But, you know, outside of the fire swamp, then she does try to save him. So I just, there's, there's certain things to me that I'm not exactly, I guess, entirely comfortable with her characterization. Yeah. Her strength is not in physical. It's not physicalized. No, her strength, I guess, is more in her, um, her personal conviction of her love for Wesley. Yes. You know, she thinks that at the very end, um, she thinks that Wesley's dead. Now she thinks she's married to Prince Humperdinck, even though she's not really. So yeah. what's she going to do? She's going to kill herself. Because yeah. at the same time, for all those moments, she's also very impudent to the kidnappers. Yes. Right? She's also very impudent to Humperdinck. When her guilt gets to her. When I, when I, when, I remember, she calls him a coward. And yeah. she says, and when I say you're a coward, it's because you're the slimiest being to ever crawl the earth. And it's... You know, I, don't, I can't remember that line verbatim. Yeah, but anyway, it's the whole, I would not say such things if I were you. Yes. Right? But but even then, that's still after after her guilt is the thing that really sets her over the edge. She has the dream where the woman's booing her. Right. <laughs> the queen of slime, the queen of filth, the queen of putrescence. Boo! 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 that scene mackish filth slime mack <laughs> she was ugly she scared the hell out of me as a kid she too. was freaking creepy yeah and just the close-up of her going <laughs> with her with her eyes I and everything I, I jumped as a little kid i'm yeah. sure so okay 
So now we've kind of talked. Oh, actually, no, here's the other thing, too. Before we stray too far away from the characters, I do want to talk um, eventually about the kind of the comedic aspect of it, for of sure. Of course. And we also um, talk about the external story going oh, on as well. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Um, but also, what was really Fezzik's motivation? Fezzik is an interesting character. I just feel like he's almost like just a divine presence. He's a divine presence. He's a gentle giant. Yeah. Right? And kind of a cool thing. This is a world where giants exist. Of yes. course, they're not as... It's interesting when you see more people take more uh, illustrations with it because I've seen illustrations of it. They actually draw Fezzik as a giant. Oh, really? As a giant. I mean, not like a twenty foot tall giant, but like a, probably a ten foot okay tall, bigger than Andre, Andre the Giant could have mm-hmm. played him. Um, Very interesting. Andre the Giant was in so much severe pain during that movie. Um, he had so much back pain and. A, Basically, he couldn't lift anything. Any scenes where he was lifting Buttercup, lifting anybody else, or doing anything, um, they were using tricks and wires because he he was fragile. Yeah. No, he, unfortunately, being a giant is not a good thing. Because your bones and limbs are of such extraordinary size, you tend to deal with lots of issues with that. Um, not just like, oh, the doors are too fucking small. Yeah. It's you deal with health problems later. Like right. your heart gets too big because mm-hmm. it's trying to accommodate pumping blood through this these extremities right which are larger than they're supposed to be and in his case you know being a professional wrestler he had to oh he had to wreck his body up pretty much do all this build all this muscle and the dude was i mean <laughs> i hear stories from wrestlers who worked with him you know he partied so hard yeah like it was not uncommon and he ate so much like when he would go out to dinner it would say they said it was not uncommon for him to eat like a dozen steaks oh my god yeah and he would just drink so much alcohol everyone would just be flabbergasted at how much of a constitution this guy had mm-hmm. physically and yet he wrecked his body you're right so he was constantly dealing with pain and he just he couldn't hurt a fly at the yeah. end of his life, you know, and there's a reason why he quit wrestling, mm-hmm. uh, just because he couldn't do it anymore, you know. And as far as him playing Fezzik, even though his character is very much a gentle giant, Fezzik himself, he kind of gives the only thing we really know about him is what he says when he's fighting Wesley, mm-hmm. you know. He is that just, he's used to fighting like a dozen men. Yeah, he that he's used to fighting a dozen men. Mostly because of his size, there's not much work for him to be other than to be an assassin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, he's just a giant. Yeah, you know, that's all a, he. That's all he is. That's all people will see him as. Yeah, and he's a giant for hire. So in a way, he is so gentle and good natured, but he's just there for the paycheck. You know, he's Wreck It Ralph. Except he doesn't really reject his job necessarily. Necessarily, he finds by luck he finds out the truth about wesley and everything and he actually is the one who sets things right right he's like oh this isn't right Uh, that's why i feel like he's kind of he's kind of the he's the the moral force he's the divine presence that's why i feel like he's i don't want to say deus ex machina that's not right but he's just well he in a way he is though because there's the whole bit where if i really only had a wheelbarrow no, right, there, right, there's right. definitely that right. part. Right, open a Holocaust cloak, and then he pulls the Holocaust cloak out of it. <laughs> Which I was, was a awesome. Max. It fits so nice. He said I could have it. <laughs> <laughs> so there we go. Okay, yeah. so he's kind of the... But the, the fact that he's there from the beginning makes him not so much the deus ex machina. Yeah. Because that's the thing that needs to kind of come out of nowhere. You're like, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is it's so subsumed into the storyline because he just kind of appears again after being knocked out mm-hmm. in the whole scene with the drunken Anigo, and somehow he found out all the information. Like, that part doesn't get explained. And maybe it doesn't need explanation. Yeah. I mean, you just know, okay, well, it's a small world. 
you know, it's it's not that far fetched to think. And how much did he know when he was working for Vizzini anyway? Right. And plus, he's a giant. He can interrogate people with no issues. Right. There's the whole mm-hmm. bit, famous scene. Give us the gate key. I have no gate key. Physic, tear his arms off. Oh, you mean this gate key? Yeah. <laughs> you know, his presence alone can scare people. Yes. You know, into saying what they want to say. And even though you never see it, I would not be so surprised if Fezzik would could take advantage of that. He's smarter than he lets on, right? No, absolutely. I feel yeah. like he... he is, Especially with the rhyme scene. Uh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I love that. I love yeah. that. Stop it. I mean it. Anybody want a peanut? <laughs> <Yeah>! <laughs> so good. He, he just... He observes. And he really does take in all of his surroundings. And he asks questions constantly, which I think is... You know, definitely a sign of intelligence. He's constant. There's always gears turning. Right. And I just love that he's got the thickest accent of any of the actors, but they give him some of the most intelligent lines. Right. Like, you're supposed to be this, 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 was it? You're supposed to be this colossus. Mm-hmm. You're this great giant thing, and yet he gains. Oh, look, I'm killing three people. Yeah. <laughs> and they can't, it's not as easy as you might think. You know, or like the, how many men? Well, the gate's guarded by 30 minutes. It's going to be all, like, he, he knows all the logistics. He's like a logistical genius. Yeah. If you think about it. Well, again, he's used to fighting a dozen men, and he actually, when he's fighting Wesley, and he's, you know, they're quote-unquote wrestling, it's more like Wesley's on his back trying to choke him out. <laughs> right. <laughs> but he's he discusses, he's talking strategy with him. He's like, this is really difficult. He's like, I'm used to fighting a dozen men, and you're just one, and you're really fast, and I'm not used to this at all. And it's But he's clearly processing everything that is happening. He's just doing it out loud. Right. And it's funny in that way, too. It's so good. So, yeah, he's definitely that moral force in that story. As far as, I mean, the heroes, and of course, you can't, we can't not talk about Miracle Max. Cause Miracle Max. He is actually the deus ex machina. Really? Yeah. yeah he's he the one who brings Wesley so, back. Yeah. Because, and this is where we know where we have to, again, separate the world from reality. Because, yes, we know this is a world where there are similar countries, but this is definitely a world where there is magic of some kind. Yeah. Because well, he, they, and they define him as a wizard. He's a not, wizard. Not necessarily. I don't think they necessarily define him that as in the, in the movie, but in the book they define him as a wizard. Yeah, and he. I mean, he wears a wizard hat. Yeah, no, it's in the. the story. He, they are the wizard and the crone. His wife is the crone. You know. Yeah, and I can't remember her name, but she has a name. Oh, uh, Valerie. Yes, Valerie. Yeah, right, which is like such a, like you wouldn't think of that as the name of a, of a crone, but Max and Valerie. Max and Valerie, right? It's not like an old Jewish couple, and and they played liar, it. Liar, liar. Get back, witch. I'm not a witch of your wife, but after we just said, I'm not even sure I want to be that anymore. You never had it so good. <laughs> so good. Yeah. Oh my god. My favorite is uh, company, company, company. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not listening. Uh, my favorite is uh, oh, look who knows so much. It just so happens that our friend theory is mostly dead. It's a very big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Hold his mouth open and then he does the little thing. <laughs> yeah. Mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, there's only one thing you can really do with all dead. What is that? Go through his pockets and look for loose change. <laughs> <laughs> Billy Crystal is just, his delivery yeah. of very his mar- lines. Very Groucho Marx. It actually. is, it really is. It's, it's, it's witty, it's punchy, it's fast. Yeah, and all that was scripted too. He didn't yes. really, he didn't really ad-lib that much. Well, I don't think they really, I don't think they really let them ad-lib much on this particular script. I just don't really think that that was what they were going no, for. No, but I think... Billy Crystal being having a background in writing, I have a feeling that he had some. Oh, if I remember probably. correctly, he had some influence in developing that scene a little bit more. Oh, I bet, I yeah. bet. Because the Miracle Max character, he said when he read the script, didn't really have any color to him, so he got to add the color to the character. 
Well, and it comes across as very Billy Crystal. Absolutely. And plus, it's so strange. Everyone is speaking in a British accent. Except and, for him. Except for him. Oh, and of course... Well, Fezzik kind of has Fezzik the, and Inigo, the because they're speaking as... Fezzik's accent is from... Greenland. Greenland, exactly. And Inigo is Spanish. But he's got this, this blatant American Jersey Jew accent. Oh, yeah. And it's... Well, um, and Carol Kane. Of course. Um, she kind of has right. the same thing going on. But Carol the Kane was just... makes it go down easier. <laughs> <laughs> but Carol Kane just is... She she does her own thing. She was in Scrooge. Um, of course. Oh, so crazy. So present. funny in Scrooge. And actually, you know, being that I'm re- watching Girls now that I have HBO, um, she was actually in an episode of Girls. Was she really? Yeah, in the second season. And I was like, I, I, I wasn't even really paying attention. And then I heard her voice and I'm like... <gasps> what princess bride what and they like ran over to the tv and i saw that it was her and i'm like oh that's awesome she's still doing stuff that was like i don't know that was really cool yeah yeah she does stuff you know every so often i think she does more voice work now yeah probably great comic relief to the story yeah well and there's there's all these moments of of comic relief and and all these just really good side characters you have the albino you have the guy at the gate you have the bishop yeah You've got Miracle Max and Valerie. Well, can you do me a favor, since you're the lit major here, can you explain Deus Ex Machina for our listeners who may not know what it okay. means? Okay. Um, so, essentially, it's... It literally means device from God. Device from God. So, it yeah. is something that is not necessarily known to exist in this world so far as, like, say, you're reading the story or watching the movie, going along with it, but it just sort of appears out of nowhere and saves the day or provides... Exactly it turns what you the circumstances to... in favor of the opponent, yes. of the protagonist. Case in point, best example I can ever give is the Eagles in the Lord of the Rings universe. Oh, perfect example. Perfect example. Yeah. Oh, and of course the Hobbit as well, right? And the Hobbit, yeah. yeah. Middle so, Earth, yeah. Yeah. Um, that's why I said the Lord of the Rings universe. Yes. <laughs> Fine. Okay, thank you. But yeah, so in the Hobbit, you know, at the very end when everything's burning and they think oh my god we're gonna die right at this moment because the orcs are like this close they're you know 10 feet away from us and then all of a sudden the eagles show up because you know gandalf managed to call them somehow um yeah, he's a, he has a talent for that doesn't he yeah that's in the hobbit um well and there's there's actually a legitimate explanation for that in that um the eagles are a non-participating party in the battles of middle earth but they do have a respect for Gandalf. They do have an agreement with him that he can call on them when they're deeply needed. Um, yeah. because the and they will do it as a favor for him specifically. So I think there was a moment when he called when he um in the Hobbit specifically, he kind of summons a moth. So, spoilers if you haven't seen it, sorry. Um It's a great scene though. And honestly, really like, good. I was like, Fuck yeah, Eagles, you yeah. go in there, you save <laughs> yeah. Um and and so they have the the moth and he and he talks to the moth whispers to it and then sends it off and they go get the and right. the moth gets the eagles and then also at the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy when Sam and Frodo are on the rock and Sam is talking to Frodo about the Shire and then the eagles come and pick them up to save well, them from the burning. Best example I can ever give of Deus Ex Machina. It's not the same as you know the trope of the gun on the wall. In Chekhov's thing, where you have a play and there's a gun on the wall, at some point that gun needs to go off. That's, that's more foreshadow. That's foreshadowing. That is something different. So this is where Miracle Max would definitely be a Deus Ex Machina in this case, because nobody knew that wizards existed in this, and and actually at no point did magic really exist up until that one until scene. Until that one scene. Yeah. And because of Mir- Miracle Max, they have the cloak. You know. But and a Deus Ex Machina is really more or less. 
now viewed as well i've written their characters in a corner and i can't get them out of it so what do i do to get them yeah, out yeah and it so it can kind of seem like a cheap writing trick sometimes but if you blend it in nicely yeah and if you make it seem like it is it actually is appropriate for that world like miracle max so if you take it he's not blatantly like waving a wand and like waking him up no he's kind of he acknowledges his own faults like i was fired by the prince he even tries to get out of actually waking wesley up or you know trying to do anything for him you know when he does the whole you know he said to blave right right <laughs> well, and that's actually where i was gonna get it the, he blends it in because going back to the laws of this world true love conquers all right yes when he asks hey hello i'm there what's so important what what do you've got that's worth living for and, and he, he says, says true, true love. love right there you go and he's like Damn it. Now I really, and, yeah. and he knows he's obligated to do this. And he's like, no, he said to yeah. play, which of course we know means to bluff. So you were playing cards huh? and he cheated, you know? <laughs> and of course I love that true love, Sonny, is the greatest thing in the world, except for an MLT, a muttonless tomato when the mutton's nice and lean. The tomatoes <laughs> are so perfect. I love that. But it's not what he said. <laughs> Again, that, I have a feeling that would have been, and even that wasn't ad lib. That was in the script. Right. Just like, wonderful delivery yeah. wonderful delivery yeah um, so he would have to be mm-hmm. that part of it and of course we know who the main villains are right we we have to talk about count rugen yes and prince upperdink humpadink 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 yeah which are really two coins of the same force yes well it's it's sheriff rottingham and like it's it's very prince much John. yeah yes. it's very much the same there's, concept there's the evil head and then the second in command yes it's who is oftentimes worse than the one who's actually in charge emperor palpatine and darth vader emperor palpatine and darth vader exactly saruman and sauron yes in a way very much so yeah 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 to make another middle earth reference while we're at it well we can just keep relating this to all things fantasy i mean really sure there's there's no problem with that plenty of versions where that goes down i'm trying to think of a comic book reference um there's not really an evil overlord i mean you can count dark side or thanos in the comic book worlds but they don't really have a second in command. And, and of course, the comic book nerds are going to be like, no, no, no. I want to draw another parallel, actually. Uh, Indiana Jones and Last Crusade. You have uh, Walter Donovan, who's kind of like the main evil, the guy whose face actually gets melted off. He's worked for the Nazis, whatever. And then Elsa, the blonde chick, kind of the, the evil and the second evil, if you will. And then also the same thing that you were mentioning about the, um, actually, the ally turned opponent. They are very representative of that archetype. Yeah. Absolutely. Anyway, just another fun parallel. No, definitely. Why don't we take a second, though, since we've talked about all the, the characters of the internal story. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the external story a little Please bit. Please do. Because this wildly changes the intention of the story, right. I think. Whereas the novel, through the commentary of William Goldman, cutting off the commentary of S. Morgan Stern's mm-hmm. story, who, again, is an author who doesn't exist, those characters of the grandfather and the son were not in the, or the grandson were not in that story. The kid and the grandfather, as they are called. Right. Fred Savage and Peter Falk. Exactly. Uh, were a device put in for the movie, when, in which case in the book, it was more about um, the narrator actually breaking away from the story. Right. Um, something kind of a little bit more self-referential, really. It's acknowledging that this is not real life. This is a story, this is a fairy tale, and it very much lends itself lovingly to right. the to the genre. For the record here, William Goldman is an expert writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, he is mostly a screenwriter by trade. He's written a couple novels. 
this is his favorite story that he's written. Yeah. It goes without saying. How could it not be? But most people don't know this. He's a pretty well-respected script doctor, too. Mm-hmm. He, did, he did a lot of doctoring work. So he understands what devices work and what don't work. Yeah. He used a couple ones that he doesn't like that much. He doesn't like narration that much, but yet he kind of had to in order to get the, the information across. He also doesn't like exposition, and there's a couple scenes that are entirely exposition. Well, it kind of makes sense, actually, that he doesn't like exposition so much because of the fact that they really rush that whole love story with how Buttercup and Wesley develop their love for each other. Yeah, and his, his method is, if you need it, if it is unavoidable, get through it as quickly as you can, and then yeah. get back to what's supposed to be going on. And then he also does not, a big, like I said, he's not a big fan of voiceover mm-hmm. either, but yet he justifies it by the device of the grandfather reading to the uh, grandson and so many many movies do narration badly where it just comes out of nowhere and then they don't stick with it it's not consistent mm-hmm. you know it just kind of goes away they use it either use it as a way of entering in the movie or a way of closing the movie in the case of terminator 2 yeah it just comes out of nowhere yeah that sarah connor ends You're like where the hell did this come from we're doing this now exactly yeah so consistency with devices is really really important particularly and, in that case and it's consistent but it's not gratuitous. What's another good example? Shawshank Redemption. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uses narration beautifully. It's consistent beautifully. through yes. beating the end. Or I think also Million Dollar Baby, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, me too. Um, but I feel, like, I feel like there's certain moments where the voiceovers, the narration happens, and you almost kind of forgot that they were going on, but as soon as it happens and you go, oh, yeah, I forgot. This is, in fact, a story that's being told to a kid while he's sick at home. Right. But here is where that pivotal change takes place between page and screen in this case so whereas it's just the commentary on the fairy tale mm-hmm. in the novel because you characterize it if you're gonna have character you have to have intentions you have to have motivations right so what is this story really about at that point is it really about the princess bride or is it about a grandfather teaching his grandson about true love rob reiner would argue that it is the latter it's a grandfather teaching his grandson about true love. Right. And he uses the story to teach that lesson. Yeah. And the whole as you wish. It's almost like an like Aesop's Fables kind of thing. Very much so. And the recurring theme of as you wish. Yeah. Or the recurring, the callback. Yeah. Whatever, the wraparound is also what it's called. And the fact that he uses that at the end. Right. right. Or the fact Which that... Which is such a sweet moment. Right. Or that, again, the, the thing that he doesn't really like this, he's not really into the story, the whole whenever they kiss, please, can we skip it? And then finally, at the very end, he doesn't mind it so he's much. He's like, no, you can keep going. It's okay. Yeah. No, it's very sweet. Yeah. Um, the kid understands finally, right? That's right. the change that takes place. Right. Um, apparently, in the original script, there was a moment, actually, where the kid and, and the grandpa actually... The kid throws such a hissy fit about, like, oh, it's another kissing scene. Blah, blah, blah. And they actually get into a little bit of a fight, and the grandpa actually leaves. He that, actually that walks does... out and then comes back in. Well, there's a moment like that that's close to that, which close is when... Close to that. Well, they, they they basically minimized it. They made that tension a little less because they, it apparently was kind of, like, uncomfortable. Yeah, it might have been too much. And the, what you're referring to, what's the closest thing to that, is the scene. He really wants to figure out what happens yeah. when it's pretty much in the thick of the second act yeah things are not going well for any of the the protagonists and he says no humperdinck lives you know and, and like he's well, like he can't live he's not allowed to live and right and the she grandfather can't marry prince humperdinck what the hell kind of story are you reading to me exactly and that's the whole look you're taking this very seriously and i should just let you i should just come back that's the closest it gets to that right right which i thought was such a sweet moment when he's like no you can stay and keep reading i mean if you want to fred savage was a great actor is a great actor yeah he does more directing now 
Yeah, no, he's doing tons of directing right now. Um, and I'm pretty sure actually that was actually one of his earliest roles, right? I don't I think so. I think this I, this may have been pre Wonder Years. Oh, it was certainly yeah, pre, it was pre- he, Wonder Years. He didn't do Wonder Years until he was in his tweens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so actually, no, this is this is him taking him when he was kind of an un- unknown. Definitely his first yeah. film or maybe his second film. Right. I think he had done some TV spots at that yeah. point. But because of this story, because of this external story that's going on, you really have two stories going on. Yeah. Right? And of course, they tie to the overall theme of true love. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess that's what makes it meta. Kind of. L- little Charlie Kaufman-ish. Yeah. In a way. But it's, and it's not just true love between Wesley and, and Buttercup, which... I mean, frankly, after their, um, you know, completely mind-blowing kiss at the end, uh, very, very end, the the kiss to end all kisses, really. And it was all right. It, it was okay. Yeah. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Could have gotten some titty in there. And I'm, kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> um, I'm just saying, like, yeah. But, but I mean, like, so, yes, they're finally, you know, together. They've got nothing stopping them. Then what? <laughs> That's what I want right. to know. What happens ever after? But, I mean, it's not just that true love. It's love between a kid and his grandpa. It's love between two friends who really respect each other when yeah. you have Aniko and Fezzik, you know? Aniko's love for his father, who's now long gone, but he still, you know, still wants to do everything for him. Well, here's what I find fascinating. Okay, go on. You have a sly look upon your face. I do, because I'm glad you finally hit on this. Because the theme is so binding, and again, talking about this rule yeah. of true love, right? Conquers it conquers all. all, yeah. Every character in that movie is vying for their version of true love. Let me explain. Please do. Obviously, Wesley and Barbara Cup are talking about the romantic love. Yes. For another, right? Inigo is talking about love of his father. Mm-hmm. Fezzik is love for mankind, I guess. Wants yeah. to see things done right. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Right? Miracle Max is jaded about love because he was he's become jaded about the world. I mean, even when Valerie's talking about true love, true love, he seems all kind of skeptical about well, it, right? Well, not so much that he's skeptical is that he knows it in the back of his head. He's just like, Meh. He's fighting it. He's fighting it, yeah. exactly. He's being cynical. Humperdink. He's being me. <laughs> Humperdink and Humperdink. Rugen are looking for their version of true love, too, but it's love of themselves, uh, love of power. Okay. And, of course, the message is love of power and being your undoing. That, and that's not a true love. What's a true love and what's not a true love? Exactly. But it's every character is vying for what they perceive as true love. Okay. Right? And, of course, the true love conquers. So, again, this speaks it's so to... It's moral. <laughs> to, it's very moral, but, you know, that's okay. Yeah. I think the world needs more morality tales. If it's folded into a nice little... Into a good story. Yes. I love moral ambiguity, frankly, actually. Um, I, again, this is... I think the reason why Princess Bride is so accessible is because it wears the mask of humor, and it wears it so well, as opposed to, if you look at its contemporaries with the time, like Legend with Tom Cruise and the, the chick who played Sloan and Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Mia Sarah, um, and Tim Curry was in that too. Um, I mean, those were the grand fantasies of the time. And that, you know, is very moral. It has no guise of humor to it. Granted, that's an awesome movie. Well, I mean, you're talking about satire, then. I guess that is what I'm talking about. Because now, as an adult, I love moral ambiguity. It's it's a personal philosophy. I do kind of feel like, to a certain extent, morality is relative. And so I do enjoy seeing that played out in art, not played out in real life. We still have laws to abide by people. But I do think I like seeing that play out in in art and in movies. 
and, um, and, and the we'll, storytelling. But again, it has to have the wear the mask of comedy. Right. Well, for me, when I'm talking about a morality tale, I'm not talking about something that necessarily preaches at you. Okay. Um, which you could say is very true of Lord of the Rings. Very true of Lord, cer- Lord of the Rings is is a bit preachy when you're talking about you know nature versus the industrial complex. Yeah, certainly true of C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia Chronicles. Oh, okay. Yeah, you mean Christianity wrapped in a fantasy story? Yeah, yeah. But to me, when I look, think of any great story, mm-hmm. any great story talks about humanity in some fashion, and it talks about the moral shortcomings of humanity in some some kind. And okay. there are there are moral shortcomings, yeah. right? I mean. An ego is driven by revenge. You could argue. But he still th- succeeds. He still succeeds. Revenge in this case is a normal cause. Yes, in this case, you see all sides of it. You see, and I think that's what's really important is you paint I, all sides of of the picture. I think, but this is this is taking it at actually a very, it's a very Western culture perspective of morality. Right. Well, because it's a it's a folk tale. Folk tales tend to have very polarized yes. moral views to it. Sure. So you really can't play with it that much. And no. when you try playing with it, you get things like Snow White and the Huntsman. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Uh- but uh, but that's okay. And and actually, you know, maybe and that's probably what Goldman was going for. Yeah, probably. Is that is that he was really again, he's really respecting the genre. It is a loving satire of the genre. And so he is going to do everything that is a very traditional folktale structure and throw some one-liners on it. Yeah, and in so doing that, he, of course, invents his own folktale. Yes. Which is the brilliance and the irony so good. of that so story. So damn good. Well, that's actually an excellent place for us I to... Do, I think so, too. That was, yeah, that was nice. To close. That was lovely. So, <laughs> well, guys, we hope you've enjoyed our discussion on what is my favorite movie and one of, one of Sarah's favorites. I, I think we really enjoyed the discussion enough for everybody else. Yeah, enough for the listeners. Fuck everybody else. We 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 didn't. We know. had fun. That's why we do this because we have fun. If you love this movie, go to user feedback on nerdonomy.com and let us know what your favorite moment is, who your favorite character is. If you don't like the movie, we want to hear your opinion so that we can make fun of it. <laughs> if you want to just throw quotes at us, that's awesome too. Because yeah. I mean, any single time you mention the Princess Bride, people just start saying quotes clearly yeah. as Brian and I have done this whole time. Yeah. So if you guys do want to contact us via Facebook, you can go to Nerds on Film. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can go to at Nerdonomy. If you feel like emailing us directly you can reach me at sarah at nerdonomy.com and you can reach me at brian at nerdonomy.com and if you don't feel comfortable talking to either of us again we of course have that listener feedback button that's on our homepage. you're more than welcome to use that or if you feel like using a carrier pigeon i am totally down for that <laughs> yeah the, this might not be the best season for that so you might want to go with the falcon right <laughs> just, just saying yes just saying you know the creatures from from you know who burrow are usually coming out because it's spring, so yes, perfect time for the hawk to strike. Yeah, so, sure. Yeah. I don't know what don't, I was trying to say with that. <laughs> don't send a carrier groundhog. <laughs> no, because it will never never get here. You'll end up in like Cleveland for some reason. <laughs> the point being is, is you guys need to talk to us because we're really lonely. And please, if you like our podcast, give us a review on iTunes. Our nerds and history co-host Eric Brickmont has brilliantly posted instructions for how to do it on our facebook pages mm-hmm. for nerds on history and nerds on film if you enjoy our podcast please tell your friends get us out there because we we just want to share our love of movies with the world and we want the world to interact with us you guys can join us in that crusade hooray yay 
we're, we're making you our minions. Go out and spread our word. <laughs> Go forth. Spread the message of Pelicula. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so with that, guys, have a good night. Have a good night. Bye. And roll credits. And now, famous movie quotes that you should not say during sex. Hey! Hello in there! Hey! What's so important? What makes life worth living for?